And our second lesson today is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And those who ate were five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Well, someday, when civilization has lasted longer than Facebook, uh, etymologists who review the development of vocabulary will be, telling, will be writing articles about how certain words changed. For instance, when did friend become a verb is something that people will be asking 20 or 30 years from now. Because you never used to use it as a verb, right? A friend wasn't noun, right? I have a friend. And now we friend someone. And so, you know, it's changed its part of speech. When did that happen? There was something else around, you know, that happened about 10 years ago that they popularized. when you fill out your profile, they ask you for your relationship status, and so you could put single or married or divorced or um, <clears throat> in a civil union, in a domestic partnership, and then they finally had to add a choice that has entered our vocabulary. It's complicated. All right. And so they just, because it was really the only way to describe certain relationships, and, and it really has entered our vocabulary. It became the title of a, of a pretty popular movie. So that's what people just sit there and go, oh, what's, what's, what is it between you two? It, it, it's complicated. Well, you know, this idea of, of thinking about our relationship status is at the heart of this story today. This story is very familiar, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And there are so many things that play off it, so many church-based ministries that refer to themselves as loaves and fishes because they focus on the miracle. The focus in thinking about the story was how did Jesus take these five loaves and these two fish and turn it into enough food to feed 5,000, and in the patriarchal society, it's 5,000 men. It says, oh yeah, we also fed the women and the kids. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, but it was 5,000 men, they were very careful to say. But it really, actually, isn't a miracle story per se. It's a relationship story, and that's what I want to talk about today. See, We pick up these stories in the middle. It happens all the time. I talk about this very frequently, that when we look at a passage in Scripture, uh, we have to look at the context surrounding it. And So we talk about this, whether it's a verse. I mean, the smaller the fragment, the less you should trust it. That's just a pretty good rule. If someone's only quoting you half a line, you got to say, 
what's around it? Why are they only giving me half a line? When they give you a story, you've got to say, what's around it? Okay, you really need to see the, the larger thing. And so our passage today began with, Jesus, with, with the, just saying, when Jesus heard this, and then it just goes on, and your, your attention is being brought to this miracle. But wait, what did he hear? When he heard what? Verse 12 is the end of the story of the what. It was this. His disciples came and took the body, and that body is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. They had, remember the story of John the Baptist? All right, so he, he is murdered. He's beheaded, his head served up on a platter. And, and John's disciples, because remember in the Bible, John had people who were following him. John's disciples came and took that body and they buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. This is the this of what Jesus heard. And then Jesus responded and it says, now when Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard this had happened to John, he withdrew to a deserted place. What does that sound like to you? It's grief. He's just heard that his cousin John was murdered viciously, and he withdrew. And then it says, when the crowds heard it, what did they hear? They heard this same story. When the crowds heard what John's disciples were telling about the story of John's demise, when they heard it, they followed him on foot. So Jesus takes off in a boat to try and get away from it all. And the crowds figure out where he's going, and they go. And then what happens is when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. The crowds had gone to meet Jesus and be with him in his grief. This is the background of the story. All right? Jesus grieving the death of his relative, the crowds hearing about this horrific thing that has happened in the life of Jesus, and the crowds following him and assembling him, and then Jesus sees them and meets their compassion with his own compassion. He cures their sick. He meets, he understands, they, they are there to be with him in his pain, and he sees them gathered, and he sees their pain, and he responds by healing them. That's the essence of what happens in this story. Okay? Don't focus on the miracle. Focus on why the miracle. And when you think about why the miracle, it's about the relationship that Jesus is having with the people. They're there for him in his time of grief, and he's there for them in their time of trouble. So the question I want to ask you is really simple. How would you describe your relationship with God? What's your relationship with God actually like? Where would you put it? What words would you use for it? I think for a lot of people, it's complicated, might actually work. But what is at the root of your relationship with God? Is it practical? Is it academic? Or is it actually emotional 
at its root the way this story has the relationship rooted in, in an emotional link between Jesus and the people. See, the disciples, I think, are stuck in a different place, at least as far as their relationship to God's people are concerned. Because when they're there at night, and it's getting late, the disciples are looking at this crowd of people, and they're like, well, Jesus, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's dinner time. And, and we don't have enough food. So why don't you just let them go and go get some food? And there's an important piece of the story here, you see, that they aren't starving. There's no implication in this story that the people don't have the means to get food. Right? They could. I mean, the disciples are presuming it. Send them away so they can go into the town and go get something to eat. They're presuming. They're not sitting there saying, oh, send them away because they're, they're all starving to death and they're going to riot and we don't have enough food. No, it was, it was, it was pretty practical. This was, oh, they can, they can go fend for themselves. And if you're focused and rooted in the practicality of the situation, that makes perfect sense. If all you can do is look at this and think about the practical, sure, they've got money. Y'all have money. You can go buy lunch. Why do we have coffee and cookies? You can go to Starbucks. Who here doesn't have a couple bucks with on you where you could head down to Dunkin' Donuts and get the coffee the way you like it? Get some with actual caffeine in it since we serve decaf. All right. Why are we giving you coffee and cookies when I'm looking at a room full of people who have the means to go get your own coffee and cookies? It's not practical. But it's at the heart of talking about relationship. Okay? So Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. In other words, Jesus is telling them to put them, he's putting them in a position of forging their own relationship with the people. And this is so important to our life of faith. What does it mean to be in relationship with God? And then to, to ask the question, what, is the, what does it mean to be in relationship with God's people? What is your relationship with God's people? How do you think about God's people as you think about how you would relate to them? Are they an obligation? Do you not think about them much at all? Or are they to be objects of love, persons whom you love the way Jesus instructed us to love them? See, there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of the story that I also think needs to be unpacked. So moving away from the miracle itself is the fact that at the end of the story, there's extra food. It says there's 12 baskets full of food. And I've always thought, okay, why? Jesus is perfect. Wouldn't you make exact portions? <laughs> right? I mean, you know, he knows exactly. Well, there's 5,000 men, there's wives, children, there's exactly 22,341 people here, and little Jimmy doesn't eat a lot. He should be able to make the exact amount of food that would feed everyone exactly perfectly. Why did he make the extra food? 
What's, what's the point of the 12 baskets extra? And I think that there's a message in that. And it's that this isn't supposed to make sense. Because our relationship with God and with God's people is not supposed to make perfect sense. Because the way we relate to the world, the way we go out into the world, is not supposed to be based on the practical, on the rational. See, Jesus is teaching, teaching a message to the people, to his disciples, that first of all, in giving, they lost nothing. In fact, they gained at the end of the day, they, they started with five loaves, two fish. They've got more food at the end than they did at the beginning. So there's this wonderful understanding here that in the process of, of being generous beyond what made sense, they ended the process better off than they were before. And that's kind of a lesson for all of us. In the course of our generosity, we have not lost, we have gained. In the course of being generous, at the end of the day, we are in a better position than we were before. And that's a metaphor in this extra bread. But there's something else about it, which is simply this. Love's irrational. It's not precisely calculated, okay? Have you ever been in a relationship, no matter of what variety in that list of Facebook statuses, it is not rational, okay? You don't sit there and you think about your partner and you feel like, wow, I should bring a bouquet of flowers and I should do it every nine days because um, after about eight days, my, you know, my, my partner starts to wonder uh, about my feelings, and so I bring flowers every nine days. And, and I know that it needs to be six roses, because a dozen, wouldn't need a dozen, six is as good as 12, so I, so I just get six. Okay, can you imagine a person... Actually, some of you are thinking, yes, I've dated that person. Uh, you know, can, but can you imagine a person who thought through the, the, a romantic relationship at that level of rational practicality? What would that be like right, if they just calculated precisely exactly what it would take to avoid a knockdown, drag-out fight? That wouldn't exactly be a great relationship, right? Loving relationships are irrational. You don't do... See, we, we often think, we often leap past <clears throat> the irrational and back to the rational. So when we talk about loving God's people, and we talk about doing what God requires, we often actually think ourselves out of love. And the thought process goes like this. God said to love God's people, so I will think about what loving God's people would look like, and then I will rationally do those things that I think God means for us to do to love God's people. When you run through that process, what you've done is you've just rationally taken the love out of loving the people. God said, love one another. 
Didn't say think about love one another. Calculate how to love one another. Just love one another. And we know that when we are in love, loving one another means doing some irrational things. I, I would hope that every single one of you can think back on one irrational thing you did out of love. One silly, extravagant, crazy, it makes no sense to anyone but me kind of thing that you did for love. But then I'd have to ask you, have you done that for God? When's the last time you can think of something that you did in the name of your love of God, because of your love for God? That didn't make sense. Didn't think it through. I, I just leaped without looking because it was born of a love for God. Because at the end of the day, that's supposed to be the relationship status we have with God. It's not, I believe in God, or I believe in the words God gave us. At the end of the day, your relationship status with God is supposed to be love. I'm in love. I love God. God loves me. And that's the relationship. And God does for me what love makes you do, including the irrational act of sending his son to die for us. And in return, sometimes we do the irrational thing for God. It made no sense. Wasn't logical. Why'd you do it? Love made me do it. If we haven't gotten to that place, then maybe we need to be working a little more on our relationship with God. Maybe we need to be thinking a little more, feeling a little more about what God has done for us and the importance of God in our lives till we get to that place where we just do what God would have us do in the name of love of God and the love of God's people. Amen.